There was a time when I was trying to figure out if I should talk about politics on my podcast. So I kind of reflected and thought about it and have realized a couple things. I am a social worker. I'm a woman with a disability. I have friends in minority groups. I have friends that are black, brown, and every color in between, all the way up to my very pale complexion. We as an American society can't ever stop talking about race. We can't ever stop talking about oppression or the horrible injustices that have happened throughout our history. I realize that as I take a stand for myself and the people that I love and care about, I realize that I can't be silent. I realize that I have to have conversations about politics and the many, many isms that divide racism, sexism, ableism. I cannot be silent. I must seek to better understand the isms that divide and unite. I hope you'll trust this podcast as I continue to learn about true stories of overcoming, and those cannot be told without my minority friends and family. Thank you for being here. Let's get started. I'm creating a collection of stories showcasing resilient people who overcome unimaginable hardships while finding beauty in the ups and downs of life. Every moment is significant. This is Push Diaries Podcast. I'm your host, Tess. Hey everyone, I'm sure like many of you, this week has been really difficult. The last month seeing headlines in the news about the pandemic and then seeing news about the murder of George Floyd, it's been very overwhelming and very hard to watch. Native American people and black people are all too frequently systemically and historically oppressed and murdered. We cannot get used to this. We as white people cannot sit idly by and not have conversations about race in America. I am honored to have Anton Truer on the podcast. He is an amazing and resilient individual who I look up to a lot. I thank Anton for his time, generosity with his thoughts and feelings around race, as I know these are not comfortable conversations to have. So without further ado, here is Anton. Hello. Hi, Anton. This is Tess calling. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How about yourself? Good. Well, hey, thanks for jumping on with me today. I I understand you're probably busy, but also find yourself with some extra time these days. <laughs> it's been a strange time. It really has. So I was doing social work um, in hospice in Alexandria before I got sick. I've always felt a strong spiritual sense as far as like my my faith. It's always been something that I have wanted to learn more about, but then also try to shed light on to people that don't have a clue or don't have an understanding, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, this is kind of my mission now, just to interview people that inspire me that I think are really strong individuals, whether that be independently, you know, with the medical journey they went through, or in, in your case, for the Native American community and the huge amounts of oppression you guys have underwent the past many years, hundreds of years. And um, yeah, so I'm just really interested to hear what you're doing. 
can you do you mind just telling me a little bit about what you do now so that people know what you're up to? Sure. Yeah, I'm a professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University. So I teach the Ojibwe language, culture, and history here. Um, you know, we're online this semester now in response to COVID, but normally in person in class in Bemidji. And then we've been using ITV and pulling in students from other locations sometimes too. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty phenomenal, all the technology right now, isn't it? I, I think... I wonder what it will be like after this is all over. I don't know. I think a lot of technological companies are going to have kind of a boost in users, don't you? I don't know. It's hard to read. I, I do think, um, you know, some of the efficiencies for all of this are going to, you know, re-engineer the way at least a lot of meetings are managed and things like that. But um, certainly there's pressure for more people to be able to work from home or flex their work location more. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as long as we're talking about that, how does that affect reservations and, and the Native American community? And I wonder what that looks like. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, with COVID, you know, like the rest of the country, you know, tribes are shutting things down and moving things online and, um, you know, it can pose special challenges for folks who don't have as much money, don't have internet, live in impoverished areas. Right. Um, for access and connection. Um, you know, but it really depends on what tribe you're looking at and what the issues are on their agendas. We've right. been using technology quite a bit with Ojibwe language revitalization. You know, we're developing Rosetta Stone for Ojibwe. Um, we produce books. There's an free online talking dictionary for Ojibwe, um, you know, and the technology can help overcome time and space in ways that standard old school instruction don't. Right. Um, and so we want all the tools in the toolbox for that sort of thing. And, you know, for politics and for um, economic development and other things that, you know, those are powerful tools on our side. Yeah, absolutely. How, how many people are not able to come into the community and help out and work in, in some of those reservations due to COVID? Well, I don't know. You know, tribes are, first of all, complicated. So, like, right. um, just as much as anyone else, half of the enrolled tribal citizenry doesn't even live on a reservation. You know, so, like, the county with the largest indigenous population in Minnesota is Hennepin County. Um, and, you know, there are lots of Native people who live in all kinds of sorts of ways. You know, tribes are um, complex. You know, in 16 Minnesota counties, tribes are not big employers. They are the largest employers in 16 of Minnesota's counties. Mm. So, the United States Indians, you end up working for one someday, you know? Yeah, yeah, no and kidding. At the same time, you know, half of the tribal population lives in poverty. It's real. It affects people in many different ways. Right, and, right. You know, and both of those things are true in the same place. So it's not as simple as a stereotype that Indians are all rich from casinos or another one that says that everyone's living in squalor on a reservation somewhere. The truth is it's a little bit complicated and it takes a little time for folks to understand what's what all's going on. 
Right, right. There's so many interconnected things, just like you said with anyone. I remember in social work when when I was learning about a lot of this, um, you know, just the idea that, yeah, each tribe has different language cues and how they communicate. Um, you're, you're Ojibwe, right, you said? Yeah. And I know, like, Lakota suffered a great amount of oppression as well. What does that look like when you're, you know, a professor and you're working with multiple different tribes? It kind of depends. I, you know, I, I teach Ojibwe language, but, you know, I've got a PhD in history and I've written books for National Geographic that cover all of the tribes in the U.S. and Canada. Um, you know, so it kind of depends on what you're doing. Um, you know, each tribe has their own distinct, you know, language, culture, and community enclaves, and not everyone's an insider there just because they're native. Like right. I've got good friends at Cochiti Pueblo, and I go down there and see them, and sometimes it's ceremony time, and they'll tell me things like, well, I don't know if we can get you in there or not, mm-hmm. you know, even though I'm brown and braids and everything else, um, because some things are just for Pueblos, you know, for example. But at the same time, there's a lot of connection and community between Native people, and we often do work together and advocate, you know, with one another on issues that impact all of us. Right. Um, what what involvement have you been able to have, um, Anton, with the pipeline issues going on in our country right now all over the nation? Yeah, sure. Um, so... First of all, not all Native people see these issues the same way, any more than all white people see them the same way. Um, But, you know, for myself, you know, I mean, there's a lot to say and unpack about pipelines, but um, I kind of feel like as long as people are buying gas, then uh, someone's going to figure out how to get it out of the ground and get it to market. And the long-term solution to the environmental damage and risk for extracting and transporting gas and oil has to be in the way that we live our lives and the products we demand and use. Right. Um, You know, and ultimately, until we do that, this will continue to be a problem. That, That being said, you know, when it comes out of the ground, you know, you can ask yourself, do you want it in a truck? want it in a train or you want it in a pipeline and that much of the discussion like it doesn't mean that pipelines are evil necessarily but the, the real problem happens that big corporations are privately owned and serving shareholders so they'll look at like getting it from north dakota to chicago and instead of drawing the most environmentally sensitive route and in good faith negotiating with tribes and other people along a proposed route, they draw the most financially expeditious route. Right. If that means that they crisscross the Mississippi River a dozen times, they'll crisscross the Mississippi River a dozen times. Yeah. 12 times more risk that a spill goes in the water. Um, And, you know, if there is a holdout, you know, a tribe, or a municipality that says we don't want a pipeline here, they'll build that pipeline right up to the edge of the place and from the other edge all the way the rest of the way. And by the time they get through regulatory hurdles and court cases, there's no reasonable alternative to somehow impacting that community. Hmm. They're a bunch of sharks, you know. Yeah. uh, That's the way they run their business. It's been interesting for me to watch, you know, and 
sometimes participate in the response to these things. Like in Minnesota, uh, Enbridge proposed a sandpiper pipeline, which would impact in spill case, um, you know, the wild rice at Lower Rice Lake in the center of the Whitearth Reservation. And the tribe objected, and there was quite a bit of protest. And it cost Enbridge so much money every day just with the delay that the protest succeeded in making it more financially reasonable for the company to abandon Sandpiper and try to pursue some other pipeline projects. Wow. So, so protest is not just about capturing attention or news headlines. It, it has more effect than people may realize. Um, I did go out to the Dakota Access Pipeline um, protest site a couple of times um, and you know the things I saw there were quite different from what I saw often on the news and it kind of strange to me that um, you know a bona fide tribal government objected to a pipeline that endangered their only source of potable water for their whole reservation and they were so ignored and brushed under the rug with the process and that you know, in response to the protest that erupted, they brought out a military response, even though protesters didn't kill or hurt anybody. You know, there was a military response. You know, the company was sicking guard dogs on people and tear gassing and water hosing them and whatever. Uh, you know, it was pretty gross. Yeah. And, um, you know, I watched them in North Dakota circumvent their law on you know, no corporate ownership of family farms because one of the ranches, um, the energy transfer partners offered to purchase the ranch so they could say anybody coming across that property was trespassing. The ranchers themselves didn't want to do that. And uh, they approved the sale, even though they have a law in Minnesota that says corporations can't own ranches and farms. Hmm. The uh, legal apparatus was designed, you know, not with a respect for law, but with a respect for the empowered position of certain folks. And right. Not natives. You know, I watched them, you know, the commissioner of education uh, in North Dakota say any children who are present um, are, you know, truant. Uh, and we should open up chips petitions. Children in need of protective services, have them removed from their families. That is just um, absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And, you know, even though most, there were some kids there, but um, most of the kids who were there were actually residents of South Dakota and were bonafide homeschool kids. Um, you know, but they're essentially weaponizing the education system because they didn't like what people were protesting about. Right. Um, you know, and so those kind of things are pretty pretty disturbing to me and you know here in minnesota i don't think it's going to get quite as nasty they got you know enbridge is a different company than dakota the energy transfer partners who are dealing with the dakota access pipeline um but it's still going to be plenty testy and um you know i've i've actually been brought into enbridge a couple times to do trainings for their team and that me they got a they got my perspective on things um and I think they're trying to figure out how to talk to people more effectively. Yeah. Ironically, like, it, it may not seem like this to folks who are working in a pipeline business, but the most effective way to get their pipelines built probably will actually be 
to be in conversation with and listening to tribes and tribal people because if there is a way they can do it with that support it'll happen faster with right. less protests and less expense right yeah it is it's it's really gross when you look at history and just how much money really does play an ugly role yeah yeah, I admire you for all the books you've written and the knowledge and training you've tried to bring people for better understanding because it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be so ugly. Right. Anton, you can you tell me a little bit about your upbringing and about what's been hard for you as a Native American person in a large country that has so many varying opinions, a lot of um substance abuse and mental health? Issues are are hard for um, a lot of people in our country, not just Native Americans, but I know that with poverty, those things kind of come hand in hand. Um, what, yeah, what what does that look like over over your lifetime? And yeah, if you don't mind talking about a little bit about that, about mental health and poverty and and those things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so you know, first of all, there. You probably found my website. If you go to the press kit, there's a bunch of articles, and some of them do talk quite a bit about, you know, my personal experience. If you need more background, but I'm happy to share some with you here. You know, my father's not native at all. He's a Austrian Jewish immigrant and a Holocaust survivor. Uh, my mother's native and grew up in Bina, a little village on the Leech Lake Reservation, and um, with pretty eviscerating poverty. And I guess you could say when my folks were getting started, my dad was in a way hitting the restart button and I was, you know, my mom was finding a pathway out of poverty. Um, so there were some humble beginnings, like no electricity, no running water, little yeah. hand pump, you know, outhouse kind of stuff. <laughs> how, how did they meet, Anton, your parents? Um, my father had taken a job, uh, long stories, but um, working for the U.S. Government Bureau of Indian Affairs um, with Community Action, and my mother had gone to nursing school um, and came back to run the community health program, uh, and so they met kind of professionally then, and um, yeah, you know, I think for, you know, by the time I hit middle school, my mom had actually become the first female Native attorney in the state of Minnesota, and, you know, our economic situation changed. But through all of that, you know, I had grown up for the most part in a native space. Um, I'm brown, I have long hair. Um, And so both with my mother's influence, but also I think, you know, from my father's perspective too, he, he had transplanted into a native space and deferred as is kind of the Jewish custom to the mother for religious things. So I, I kind of grew up with my Ojibwe beliefs and practices, although maybe I didn't, I took things for granted until I got a little bit older. Yeah. Um, you know, but uh, certainly that, that's very central to what I do now, you know, as I've learned language, you know, language and culture kind of go hand in hand. I officiate at funerals and um, help with a variety of healing ceremonies and medicine dance and things like that. So, um, you know, that's a big part of what I do now. And, you know, through, through that, um, you know, I, I guess I kind of see myself as, you know, one of many servants to the bigger 
indigenous community here around things like culture. Yeah. Um, you know, you've asked about health and mental health and things like that. And, you know, you're probably familiar with the concepts of historical trauma. And Absolutely. Like yes. Sure. So, uh, so these are things that, you know, are very real. And, you know, when people experience a trauma, they, there's an epigenetic imprint and it gets passed on through the generations. So, you know, first everybody's got trauma somewhere in their tree because everyone has somebody somewhere back in their family tree who was clunking somebody over the head with a club. Right. You know, but uh, <laughs> or worse. But some, yeah, but some people just to have a more concentrated experience with trauma, the black experience of slavery, or the native experience with genocide and residential boarding schools, and today it kind of pops up more like popcorn. And um, you know, I, I think that experience and the fact that the indigenous population is disproportionately poor um, and, you know, access to health services, mental health services, um, you know, community connection, cohesion, cultural continuity, all those things are under a lot of pressure and threat. So I think that makes it kind of difficult for Native people um navigating the world that they're in and and certainly the health and mental health disparities we face are profound and obvious and difficult to manage yeah it's it's very sad and it's you know it makes me think about the trauma that i've experienced in my life and the ways in which my disability now being in a chair i'm in a wheelchair my my tumor was removed and now i'm wheelchair bound and and I do I I think about trauma and how it's affected me and I know the way that I process my reaction to things is different now like 100% and you know sometimes that's for the good and sometimes it's for bad right like sometimes I react quicker or hotter than I want to to something because you know I have a shorter fuse I guess you might say so Mm -hmm. I I can only imagine the turmoil that I would feel you know being being a part of a culture I was so proud of and felt so drawn to and a part of you know I I know people struggle anyone struggles with their self-identity and their confidence and yeah how how do you have that when when you've been oppressed for years Do you have kids, Anton, or or tell me a little bit about your family now, today? Yes, I have nine children. Wow. Um, So, you know, six are of my making, and I've got a big blended family. Um, I actually took on three foster kids as well. Awesome. And, um, yeah, I got half of them out the door, and half of them are still home. Yeah, yeah, well, that's cool. I mean, if you've got nine of them, it sounds like you'll be tied up with that for a while. <laughs> yeah, at least they haven't broken into the interview asking where all the hatchets are. Right, hey, that would classes. that would be just fine if they did. In fact, I tell people all the time, if you want to bring your kid on, go for it. Because of your dad surviving the Holocaust and him being Jewish, what does that look like for you uh, when you were growing up? I mean, what a powerful and amazing thing that both of your parents are truly survivors. Um, Do you want to share anything about that? I didn't know that about you. Yeah, you know, I guess first of all, well, I have a very close relationship with my father and, you know, he's very... I, I don't just like love the native parts of me. I love all the parts of me. Right. Um, you know, and um, even 
though I grew up in a native place and look very native, I, uh, and culturally and, and religiously identify that way, you know, I still, um, identify strongly with, you know, the other parts of my being and heritage as well. And one of the things that I, you know, I kind of remark on with the experience, you know, trauma experience, both my parents had, um, and really in the family trees going back on all sides is that we're, we're first of all more than the sum of our tragedies. And although trauma is real and it impacts us today, and, you know, I have seen it take down many people, including in my family, but at the same time, that's not the only thing that impacts us. Right. Um, and the good things get passed forward through generations as well. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I truly believe that I've inherited a remarkable capacity for resilience. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, when you look at the problems that plague, you know, native communities, for example, things like substance abuse and, you know, mental health issues and so forth, like ultimately the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. Yeah. And so what does that mean? And in spite of 500 pretty rough years, here we are, we still have, you know, indigenous languages to speak and revitalize and use for our ceremonies and things like that. And in spite of everything we've been through, we still have you know, tribal governments and communities and a rich cultural patrimony. That doesn't mean that we haven't, you know, had a whole bunch of problems to deal with. Right. But the problems aren't the only things that we have to deal with it. And I, I, I really believe that of all the things wrong in Indian country, there's not a one of them that can't be successfully addressed by what's right in Indian country. And, um, Ironically, like the solutions to something like poverty, you know, or whatever, it, it's not as simple as teaching all the Indians to act like good little white folk, you know? <laughs> right, of course ultimately, not. Ultimately, um, the more that they can connect to themselves and to one another and to their community and place, ceremony right. and language, then the more positive, you know, hooks you have in somebody to maintain healthy individual living and community and family right. and all these other things that can buoy people through, you know, the most horrific experiences that that are imaginable as individuals, but also as as groups and communities. And right. Tribes. Right. Yeah, I think you I think you make a really good point about finding that inner happiness and confidence and then being able to have a stronger community that is focused on connection and, you know, one another. I I think every young white child like myself, I mean, I'm a, I'm a mutt, I like to say. I'm many parts different things. But, you know, the first Native American things I learned about as a very young child was, you can guess, Pocahontas. And it's like sad and silly all at once, you know, just that that was my understanding of, 
the people that took care of the very earth that I walk on. You know what I mean? Up through my whole upbringing. And it's like, I admire how much the Native American people honor the land and truly are stewards of the land. I think it's just a really beautiful thing and spiritual in itself. Um, I, I find I find difficulty sometimes understanding, you know, my own religion and the way that I've been brought up because, you know, I I look into my dog's eyes and I feel like I, you know, they're the most pure being on the planet. Yet, you know, there are Christians who don't believe that animals go to heaven or, you know, whatever, or have a soul. Um, and it's just it's such an interesting thing to me. Um, just how we are truly so interconnected. I, I spoke a, a few weeks back to a gentleman. He was a pastor for like 30 years, and he just had such a beautiful metaphor for how, you know, you look at a river and it's full of rapids on the surface, but underneath we have such a common fluidity. You know, like you said, we're connected. That's the That's the beauty of it. But sometimes people just see what's on the surface and are so easily, you know, turned off by trying to have any relationship with it. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, it's, it's complicated. You know, I, I certainly believe that there is a deep spiritual, you know, force that works and lives in and amongst all things um and that human beings have really imperfect filters that we've developed that are often governed as much by politics and you know social culture rather than just higher order spiritual things yeah um you know that that really get in the way and to me you know we are, and we often coach people about stuff like this when there's a funeral or something like that. It's not so much that we're like humans looking for a spiritual experience. We're spirits having a temporary human experience. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not like we have souls. We we are souls. Right. We have bodies for a little while. Right. And, and you know, I believe this. Um but oftentimes, you know, the religious doctrine becomes so dogmatic and also so judgmental. Like, you know, if the creator were that judgmental, we'd all be dead. But uh, but somehow, you know, it's used, you know, to create in and out groups and to try to modify human behavior, often with fear rather than love. Right. You know, and those sort of things that I find troubling and, and I, I feel suspicious like how could that not be of human origin rather than spiritual right origin? right no I 100% uh, agree with you yeah. it is it's just wild how people can twist things for constructs you know really really shameful I mean so yeah, yeah. now this Rosetta Stone stuff can we talk a little bit about how you're helping to because I agree it's that that negative stuff it is. It's suspicious and it's sad and I think we've covered it well. So we'll talk about some happier things now. Yeah, if you could kind of go into how the Rosetta Stone thing came up. Were you contacted by people? How big is your team working on this? What other language are, languages are you guys 
trying to preserve. And Anton, too, how different is Ojibwe language than, say, um, Lakota or Sioux? I mean, they're totally different, right? Do some words um, overlap, or or how how do you yeah how do you help those smaller, even more marginalized? Native American groups that they're really literally dwindling by numbers. And then have you seen a big rise in that too over the last 10 years of more people kind of coming out of the woodwork to help you make connections and resources with the people you need? Yeah, there's a lot to say about indigenous language revitalization. My latest book, The Language Warriors Manifesto, kind of goes deeply into that and my own story around language stuff too and um yeah i guess first of all each language you know has its own history background and varying states of vitality where we're at a time now where there are still almost seven thousand languages spoken in the world uh but only about a hundred are actively and widely taught at colleges and universities Wow. Uh, and so we are seeing a huge declension in languages around the world. Probably about 2,500 are severely endangered, meaning you can count the number of speakers on two hands. Uh, and so we're, we're going to see most of those go. Um, and then even within the United States, looking at indigenous languages, you know, we went from over 500 pre-contact we're down to like around 150 now, and about 20 of those are spoken by kids. Hmm. So, you know, we're, we're at a time where many, most indigenous languages in the U.S. are, are extremely threatened. So uh, that makes for challenging work. Uh, for me, you know, one of the, there are a lot of things to talk about regarding why. I think a lot of people think indigenous languages, well, that's neat, or it's a, another pretty bird singing in the forest. Um, but to me, it's much more than that. Like a lot of the problems that we face as human beings come from the colonial approach to the world. You know, Europeans were busy colonizing one another for a long time and then perfected that and took it to the rest of the world. And, you know, that's different from the kind of violence that, has always existed with humans, you know, clunking them over the head with a club to take land or food or things like that. This is the kind that said you have to worship God the way I do, and you have to speak the language that I do, uh, and that your value is less unless you can make yourself in my image. Uh, and that kind of violence has really been at the heart of, you know, driving the, the racial disparities and disconnections and divisions in our society the religious ones, and many other things. And so why would we think that the problems created by the colonial way of solving problems are going to be solved by the colonial way of solving problems? Right. It, it just doesn't make sense that they would. No. So embedded in indigenous languages and cultures are ultimately the solutions to many of the problems that we all face around climate change, race relations, healing and many other things right and so there's a lot at stake for keeping them all going right for a language revitalization effort there's so many things that factor into its success or failure um 
I feel quite heartened by what's happening with Ojibwe. Uh, you know, 20 years ago or so, we probably, you know, had, I could count on two hands all of our Ojibwe books. We have so many hundreds of them now, I couldn't even tell you how many. Um, we have awesome done things that haven't happened in a long time, like in Wisconsin, they really hadn't produced a fluent speaker of an indigenous language since about World War II until starting about 20 years ago, the first Ojibwe immersion school there, uh, which has really had remarkable success. There's about 125 kids running around on the playground arguing with each other in Ojibwe. And that's just something that didn't exist in that place in previous times. So um, since World War II. So I've been really excited and heartened to see what's what's happening. Um, I was called into a meeting in Mille Lacs, um, which is one of the reservations in central Minnesota. Yes. And uh, it was kind of a strategy meeting. They had a, several of us who do work with Ojibwe, and they just wanted some guidance, you know, as much as anything about navigating grants and stuff like that. It sounded like kind of like a boring meeting when I was getting uh, lined up for it. Yeah. But when we realized that there were some pretty significant resources um, that they wanted to devote to language revitalization, I said, well, listen, why don't we do things? Like they had identified in this community about 25 remaining fluent speakers of Ojibwe. And I said, instead of, you know, making them do all the work, why don't we do things that will leverage their voice and put them in a position to teach people for hundreds of years to come. Let's develop some books for kids, some recordings. Let's do Rosetta Stone. Let's do all these different things. Wow. And, uh, and, and everyone looked around at each other, and they were like, let's do all of that. And so, um, so we've been working for about a year and a half now, kind of developing programs and ideas and so forth. Um, the first, we've been pulling together... Um, most of the 25 elders and pairing each up with a uh, fluent, uh, you know, literate and fluent transcriber and taking down their stories um, in a series of sessions. So we've got three new kids books that are um, contracted and will be released now this fall by the Minnesota Historical Society Press um, of their work. And then, you know, Rosetta Stone's kind of in the works. It's not ready for release or anything like that. It takes about a year and a half to develop one year of the program um but they're planning to do a six-year um development of rosetta stone oh that is just yeah that is amazing to hear about and it puts a smile on my face to hear you say it out loud right on here and that yeah that will be just absolutely incredible and what a great way to preserve the history and culture of of the native people yeah no i feel really great about it that's awesome. So how long have you been a professor and and how long have you been at Bemidji State? Well, I have been a professor for about 20 years at Bemidji State and I was in uh, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee for four years before that. I'm 50 now. Um, so that's most of my professional working years. Um, I, you know, I'd gone out of high school to Princeton for my undergrad work and then went to University of Minnesota to do grad work. Did some teaching down there while, as a grad student. Well, very cool. Now, which, which book is your favorite and why? And yeah, would you just answer that one? What was the most fun to 
right? Did you hear any stories from someone that just made it really enjoyable or took your research on a kind of a different road or yeah, tell us about the books and what your favorites are. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, it's hard for me to say that there's a favorite. It's like, which one's your favorite kid? They're right. All <laughs> they're all great. <laughs> yeah. They're all beautiful. And, uh, that's the only thing I can say on air, but you know, ultimately, um, it really depends on the project. And I, I think I would feel both bored and limited if I only did one kind of work. So, right. you know, you heard me speak a bit about, you know, indigenous language revitalization. And so my latest release, the Language Warriors Manifesto, gave me a chance to both be very personal in a way that I often haven't been in some of my other work. Um, and tell my story around language revitalization, kind of how I did it, um, a community one, like how we did it, as well as speak to, you know, the need for this work, what's in the way, you know, and strategies and tools for people. So I, I've been really heartened by the response to that and the experience of writing it was kind of cathartic for me, um, but very different from other kinds of work that I've done. I, you know, when I wrote the Warrior Nation, a history of the Red Lake Ojibwe, that was a massive archival, you know, and oral history deep dive into the history of this one place. And it was really powerful for me to, to do all of the discovery work yeah. and to see its impact mm -hmm. in the community. You know, mm -hmm. like even at the basketball games, people have signs up, you know, Warrior Nation or whatever. And it's, mm -hmm. it's something that has really mm -hmm. impacted the people. And every single person I wrote about in that has many living descendants at Red Lake today. So this is something wow. people really tuned into. All the projects are different. You know, I, I, I really enjoyed doing the assassination of Hole in the Day, which we're trying to make into a movie now. Uh, and that's been quite an exciting journey. And very different, like when I was doing the National Geographic book, you know, we basically developed a super detailed outline. And then there was a whole team of people just working images and maps. And I ended up having to write to not just like page or word counts, but character counts to make everything fit. And wow. so, uh, you know, that was just a very technical kind of pressure cooker work, but pretty awesome to see what happens when it comes out so yeah yeah these books are gonna be around for you know long years after our 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 physical bodies go away and I think that's very amazing that you've been able to put in so much time around that um and been able to see those those benefits so that's very cool yeah and you know it's been great it, it puts me into conversation with a lot of really interesting people and you know some works are kind of more academic and others are are the exact opposite of that like i think everything you wanted to know about indians but were afraid to ask was mainly me throwing all of the pick the questions that i got into a shoe box and then pulling them out and trying to work up some answers so that was kind of fun yeah and, and certainly one that's you know sold well and taken me on the you know, speaker tours will look quite a bit, so. Yeah, yeah, that's the book. I, just this last summer, in 2019, I was in Minnesota. I'm actually in Michigan right now. I moved out here to be with my fiancé, and um, I, I worked as a volunteer um, service manager at the front desk at the Winona County Historical Society, and we sold, we sold your book there, the, the Many Questions book. 
And um, yeah, we had like we had like six on the shelf all the time, and people would buy them and would order more. And it was it was a very interesting book. And who would have thunk a year later I'd be wanting to call you up? So it's kind of neat how it all comes full circle, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Very very interesting. So so yeah, what do you what would you like to do? You know, as you continue to age, Anton. Um, I mean, the work you've done is very incredible, very inspiring. What do, what do you picture your last, you know, well, I shouldn't say last because you make a good point. We are souls. Yeah, we are souls that are alive now. I mean, I, I just think that is such a beautiful way to describe it. And um, yeah, what does your next 20, 40 years look like? Well, uh, you know, I have plans. I, I feel like I'm just getting started. You know, my goal is really to be replaceable many times over. I've got a namesake who said, if if you learn something, make sure that you teach it to at least four other people, whether that's, you know, a medicine, a song, you know, a teaching, whatever it happens to be. And, you know, I, I guess I find myself in possession of some pretty rare knowledge now uh and i i'm devoted to our ceremonies and ojibwe um culture and i've got a lot of work to do in teaching and sharing that i've got never-ending projects although i usually don't talk about the details of them until they're done um yeah i i kind of feel like there's way more to do than there's ever time to do it and i try to balance things out and you know i've got a lot of beautiful children yeah want to show our ways too so i spend a lot of time with them that's very very cool well it sounds like you're chomping at the bit to do even more work and i'm happy and excited to know you and know that you're doing good work for for not only your indigenous community but the entire state of minnesota and far beyond it um what you're doing the work you're doing is far reaching and and i appreciate that humility because anton i wish more people you know thought the way you thought and had the drive and passion you did to truly leave a long-term you know positive effect on on the people that you care about so it's just very neat yeah, I appreciate it. Glad we connected. Yeah, me too. Well, just here at closing, do you mind sharing like one Native American story, whether it's traditional or one that you've heard kind of out on the road as you've been teaching and one one that's uplifted you and stuck with you throughout the years? Well, I could just share maybe a, you know, kind of a saying or teaching that we have. Uh, Great. In Ojibwe, we'd say, which would mean like if there's ever a bramble in your life pick up your hatchet and it it's a way of saying when things get hard pick up your ways and ultimately um you know with our ojibwe ways we we don't do things alone and so um i've always appreciated that when there's is a hard time when there's a death when there's a sickness or whatever well in the mainstream people are often conditioned to check your issues at the door and don't talk about them um that in an ojibwe context we're encouraged to bring them in so everyone can help share the load and ultimately as we find 
and create community. I, I really feel that, uh, you know, Ojibwe people and other native people can kind of help pollinate the garden everyone's trying to harvest from um, at the same time that we carry our culture and ways for, you know, for ourselves. Uh, we have something to contribute to the rest of the world, too. Yeah. Well, very good. Thank you so much. Tell your kids I'm disappointed they didn't come in and ambush our um, interview. <laughs> that would have. I'm sure they would. Right, it would have been fun. But I, I hope you have a good day, Anton. And thank you so much for all the work you're doing. Okay. Thank I, you. Do you want me to use Amazon, or, or maybe that's on your website too? How do people find your books? Yeah, everything's on the website, and I did just link up to the Amazon order portals, but for books. But yeah, if you go in there, you can click on the books and then there's lots of stuff in the press kit for some of the recent articles. There's one in Al Jazeera kind of on my spiritual work and there's a profile I think you saw in the Star Trib, um, you know, on some of the language things. So whatever you think's relevant. All right. Sounds good. Well, I'm sure if people can just go to your website, they're going to be very well connected. So thanks again and you take care and... Sweet. Hold on anything on the website that you want to use. Okay, sounds good. Thank you so much, Anton. Have a great day. All right, you too. I usually include one commercial like segment for each episode I put out. For this episode, I wanted Anton to have the floor to share what things would be beneficial to give to. He picked three things. First, he graciously asks for people to donate to the Black Lives Matter movement in Minnesota. He also would like to share the Ojibwe Language Institute and the Ojibwe Native Journal with you. Please check the website for those links. Thank you. Let's get back to the show. Well, awesome. Um, well, I was listening back to some of my interview with you from before, and I kind of, I kind of steered our conversation away from your childhood and your upbringing. So, if you don't mind me just going back to that for a second, I know you said you had a lot of information on your website, and you do. It's all really great. I would just love for the listeners to be able to hear what your upbringing was like and how you were able to really lean into your culture and, you know, be resilient. Because I know you said it's just like a part of you that you like to do things, you like to keep moving, you seem like a very determined, passionate individual. So kind of want to hear about how that came about, if you don't mind. Yeah, I'm happy to share more about my upbringing and childhood experiences. Um, you know, I'm I'm mixed race. My father's an Austrian Jewish immigrant and a Holocaust survivor. He spoke nothing but German the first 13 years of his life. Um, he and both of his parents um, and two cousins survived the Holocaust and all eventually made their way to America. Everybody else died in the concentration camps. And so, you know, I think for him, there was a lot of um, 
overt and painful trauma when he was in Austria and in his experience, you know, coming to the States. And uh, he was hitting a restart button, both in a emotional sense and, you know, a financial and life building sense and in a family sense. Uh, he eventually made his way to Minnesota um, at my mom. And here I am. Uh, my mom grew up in a really small community in the center of the Leech Lake Reservation. I think for her, there's a really visceral experience with poverty. And, uh, you know, for her, a lot of what we would consider cultural pastimes, harvesting wild rice, fishing, hunting, those were less like cool cultural things to do and were more necessary means of survival. Uh, and you know, I think as my parents were getting started, they had, you know, they were both trying to find a way to deal with extreme um, poverty um, and find a way to, um, you know, start a new life. And, sure. you know, I think they both had developed a pretty powerful way of looking at things um, and set of tools for dealing with adversity that uh, really helped. And and I think I learned a lot from not so much through direct instruction, but just by observation uh, that, that provided a lot of help to me. Um, you know, when I was a child, we experienced a lot of poverty. So, you know, there were, um, you know, times when we didn't have running water, electricity, things like that. Um, but at the same time, I uh, watched by the time I hit middle school, my mother had become the first female native attorney in the state of Minnesota, built a nice house. The economic profile for our family changed significantly. And I saw the power of an education. But I also kind of feel like all the mythology we get about the American dream is well, we call it a dream because you got to be asleep to believe it. There are yeah. barriers out there and the barriers are not fairly and equitably distributed. Absolutely. By, by race, by gender, by life circumstance. Yeah. Um, some people have it easier than others. And I think because we are so conditioned, especially in a place like America, to think that we earned all our fruits by our own good hard work and good morals that um, we are loath to say that we had it easier just by accidents of birth. And I think everybody in this country by accident of birth already has some benefits Yeah. Um, just by living in a very safe country. And, you know, there are people who struggle plenty in America, but most aren't starving to death, but, there are millions of people starving to death. Yeah. Uh, not because of their poor choices or poor morals, but because they were born in a different place. Yeah. And so uh, I think one of the life lessons that I, that I learned from all of that was that, you know, the world's not going to give you the same set of cards that everyone else is going to get. And, you know, in my particular case, some people got better cards and uh, other people got worse cards. Yeah. And 
acknowledging that it's really helpful because I, I think our disappointments are inversely proportional to our expectations and we expect that we should be treated fairly and kindly and be given opportunity and unfortunately sometimes opportunities are denied when they really shouldn't be yeah um racism sexism yeah racism, yeah ageism, yeah you know, whatever the, the isms happen to be and frankly capitalism too. yeah yep i totally and, agree with you yeah uh, and so like what are you going to do you, you are you are dealt a certain hand of cards so on the one hand i feel like i gotta take my cards and play them the best way that i can i have to teach my children to take their cards and play them the best way that they can but if that's all i do you know our world is highly oppressive so if i teach my kids how to work that game i'm essentially teaching them how to be good oppressors and so it's also it's not sufficient to say play your cards the best way you can i also have to say it's important that you are aware how unfair the rules to the game are in which you're playing your cards yeah so at the same time that you have to play your cards the best way that you can you also have to work to change the rules to the game to make it more equitable and fair. Yes. That doesn't just mean fair to you, but fair to other people that you know you might have a hard time seeing because you're not living their experience. Yeah, no, that's so well said, Anton. It's so well said. You literally said everything that I was hoping you would and more, and I think the way that you describe that is really good. You know, in my social work background, I've done a lot of um, studies on demographics, and you're so right. It does. It sets everybody up differently. You know, it's like I always think of a racetrack where, you know, some runners start closer, you know, inside the circle on the track. Some runners start closer and some start farther out just to make it more fair. And the truth is that you're right. These demographics really do set us all up at different um, starting points. And it's important to understand that our neighbors and community members are are in that race too. And it's not always fair for them, you know, like you're saying. So that's yeah, and, it's and really humans, right? Mm -hmm. And humans are pretty complex. So one of the other things that happens is, is we think, well, I'm running my butt off trying to win this race. And somebody's saying I got privilege, screw it. I don't have privilege. No, yeah. You know? And and act very defensive. And then sometimes people will try to say, well, what is the problem then? Is it race? Is it class? Is it gender? Is it either or this or that? And I guess the other thing I would say is it's not either or. It's yes and. Right. It is race and gender, you know, and sexual orientation and class and many other things yep and they all operate at the same time so it's in some ways it's not just one race with one group of runners it's like many different things that are intersecting with each other yeah and so you know i think about this like for example with my wife who you know happens to be from the swedish american tribe you know blonde hair and blue eyes and so you know Every morning I get up and I go for a run and she often goes for a run too. And when we do this, like 
we live in a rural area. So people might pull over on the side of the road to like check their cell phone or something. When that happens to me, it never bothers me or freaks me out. The only thing that makes me feel unsafe when I'm running is like people texting and driving. Yeah. For her, her heart starts to race. It might skip a beat. She thinks, oh, my God, is this a sexual predator? Yeah. somebody trying to rape me? Should I turn around and go back? Should I run in the woods? What's my escape plan? Yeah. And as a result, first of all, she's not as safe as me doing the same activity. And second of all, she never feels as safe as me doing that same activity. And so in this particular case... There is an unearned advantage to me by being a man. Yeah. And there is an unearned disadvantage to her being a woman. Now, when we get in a car, our roles reverse. She's white, blonde hair, blue eyes, and she can break that speed limit and the cop will just stand on the side of the road with his finger pointing down, like, slow it down, man. Yeah. You know? And me being dark with long hair um you know i'm a fuddy-duddy professor dude and i've been pulled over by the police 40 times yeah and i've been pulled over twice this past year for no seat belt while wearing a seat belt in broad daylight wow in professor clothes yeah you know yeah to which i would reply but i'm wearing my seat belt and the cop would say oh you are now yeah you know yeah so and, and I've had, you know, police officers pull guns on me twice. Oh, my gosh. Why? Yeah. What? Can you talk about that? I mean, Anton, these sure. are the things I want to hear about. I mean, it, it's so important. I love that you're going into all this because race is a huge, huge part. And, you know, now being disabled, I, I see that. I see ableism so much more than I ever have. And, yeah, right. can, can you talk about the police pulling guns on you i just want to know what that was about yeah so just as as one example um i was actually driving my wife's car minivan honda odyssey with bumper stickers saying you know my kid's a middle school honor student or whatever yeah and in broad daylight i've got like three of the kids in the car they're they're young and uh get pulled over and before even coming to the window or anything the police officer unholstered his weapon. What? Drew it out and approached, you know, in a coiled crouch up right. the window. Oh, my God. You know, and is sitting there at an angle with the gun right there, you know, saying, you know, license and registration. And so it's pretty stressful for me, even under normal circumstances, but I'm also driving my wife's car and she's a bit of a mess with her car yeah <laughs> so I, I always have my you know my insurance card and stuff clipped to the visor so i don't have to sure. reach for a glove compartment and risk being misunderstood as mm-hmm. reaching for a gun or something mm-hmm. and so her car's a mess that's so not right there right you know and so i just keep both my hands on the steering wheel and i say is it okay with you if i ask one of my children to open the glove compartment you know oh my and gosh eventually found the insurance card you know, presented the stuff and, you know, he could see the kids in the car and eventually he seemed to relax a little bit, put his gun in the holster. And I said, you know why I'm pulling you over? I said, no. He said, well, you're four miles over the speed limit. 
and uh, kept us there for about half an hour, gave me a citation for speeding, um, and then we were on our way. And that's stuff that happens to me, like, often. Like, I get pulled over often, and there's often a kind of shakedown, a body language, um, an amount of time spent um, that make it clear that I would not be experiencing these things, and certainly not this consistently, if I didn't have dark skin. Right, if you didn't look and, like how you look. And, yeah. And I can tell because my wife, who probably speaks more than I do, just has never been pulled over. Yeah, she's never had and a gun pulled on her. Yeah. She's never had this experience, you know? And so, you know, in that particular case, race operated more powerfully than gender, you know? But it's situational and they intersect with each other. So it very much depends on the circumstances, which thing is going to be impacting things. So instead of just one race where some people get to start ahead of others, like we have all of these variables, when it comes to gender, I get advantage. You know, when it comes to race, I get a disadvantage. Right. When it, when it comes to like physical ability, I get an advantage. Yeah. You know? When it comes to economics, when I was a child, I had a disadvantage. Now I have an advantage, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's, it's situational and it depends. And so, you know, all of those things intersect with each other and collectively, you know, give you the data sets that we all see, mm -hmm. like the life expectancy for a Native American man in Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota is like 57 years. Yeah. And they tell you save money for retirement, you know, and that's just part of the reality. Yeah. And it's not because of like poor genes. Right. It's because of a whole host of circumstances. Right. Like we talked about before. Yeah. Include how we're treated in the health system, access to health care, you know, all kinds of things that impact this. Yeah. Violence, you know, but also substance abuse, other things, you know. Yeah. And, and it's complex. Absolutely. So, you know, I think most people want a really simple answer. And uh, it's not quite that simple. Yeah. But certainly, you know, all of us, you know, we don't get a blank canvas and complete neutrality and earn everything just because we're good people who work hard. Mm -hmm. You know, we are deeply advantaged or disadvantaged. And if we can't see them, chances are we're experiencing advantage. Right. More than disadvantage. Because if you are disadvantaged and there's a reason, you probably know it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how as you age and you get older and you experience more of those isms and those demographics we're talking about, um, really being aware of it. And it always just blows my mind. And I know you know this as a professor too, but how ignorant people can be and how clueless people can be of their white privilege. It's, it's, it's disgusting. Honestly, I... I'm so grossed out by it. <laughs> like, I'm I'm grateful that I'm, you know, I was born into a white, economically okay family. I mean, we weren't super rich by all means, you know. We, but I grew up with my feet being warm and my belly being fed, you know. And now that I have this disability, I see it more. And as I just learn more about life as a woman as I age and you know, how we talked about our spirits and our souls and religion. It's just so, you're right, it's so, um, 
it's all so different depending on the person and where they're from and their attitude and how they take whatever cards they were given and lay those out amongst those isms. It's it's really interesting. So how did your kids feel like after the cop left? The fact that you had kids in your car, I, I mean, that just makes my heart race right now, hearing you have to be patient for a half an hour while a cop is being blatantly rude and racist. I mean, what sorts of you things know, did your kids that's say? happened to me 40 times, mm. you know, in different circumstances and conditions where I've been pulled over and usually held for quite a while. Um, I'm a little more used to it now. And so my kids, like, you know, I had three sons and they probably ranged in age at the time from like, you know, eight to 14 or something, you know? And, uh, I, all I could do is tell them this is about the nicest you should experience right. when you are driving. This is why I need you to keep that insurance card clipped to the visor. Because if you're alone and there's nobody to dig it out for you, right? who looks like an innocent child, then uh, you can easily be misunderstood mm-hmm. as reaching for a weapon. Yeah. And they will not give you the benefit of a doubt. So you have to take extra care. Yeah. Because other people will not have a special value placed on your life. They right. Will especially devalue your life. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be like that, but that's how it is. Right. So you don't get to navigate the world that you think should be there. You get to navigate the world that's there. Yep. yep. And uh, that's hard. It is. But if you try to fight the unfairness in every second, you will be exhausted from all the fighting and you may lose battles that could cost you your life. Yeah, it's just not worth it. Yeah, you're right. It's and better. that's the reality. Yeah. And there are ways to fight those fights, you yeah. know, that still provide for, you know, reasonable safety with advocacy, education, things like that. But yeah. um, at the same time, you know, it's difficult, like, especially for young men, like everything from like raging testosterone, <laughs> going through puberty. <laughs> yeah. Doing that, these. This is the age when people like, you know, decide to play tag on the rooftops, grabbing telephone wires and stuff like that. You know, like, yeah. You know, common sense just is a little harder to come by in that age group, and it's when you first get tested with this stuff. Yeah. And so, um, I try to make teaching opportunities out of that stuff, but it's it's difficult, you know. Yeah, and you know, I mean, just them experiencing it and having you model for them a good way to react to a police officer. I mean, it's ridiculous and it's horrible that you were treated that way, but I'm glad that your children have you to learn from because, you know, you're a, did you say 50-year-old man who, you know, has lived this life and you've been in this body that looks different than a white, you know, male, and um, you can really set your kids up to I hope, you know, be safe. And I hate it. I hate that it has to be that way. It's infuriating to hear that story and the fact yeah. well, that there's you... no way for me to keep them safe. Like, right. You know, I equip them with tools that increase the chances of them being safe. That they can be safer. Sure. But they will still experience the differential treatment and they will still be in a riskier 
situation more Absolutely. likely, yeah. you know, to have trouble. And, uh, and that's terrifying, mm-hmm. you know, and there really aren't great alternatives. Like, you know, what you're going to do, move to any other country, they got racial issues just like we do. Right. You know, you know it, it, it's not like that. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and it's, it's bizarro to me that like racism is so American that when you, you know, challenge or protest the racism, people think you're protesting America. Yeah, you know? it's sick, and isn't it, it? It is. I agree with you. It's It somehow gets twisted and totally mistranslated. And yeah, it's there's such a wide spectrum of political bias and corruption. And it's just it is it's it's really gross. It's just. Yeah. And it's implicit bias. Like people don't see it. Right. You know, they don't see it until it's really brought to their attention. Like, you know, in a place like Minnesota here, and people use the word Jew as a verb commonly, right? Like I Jewed him down. That's yeah. That's, that's horrible too. A lot of, right. Just the way we talk, whatever, like they're not thinking about it. They're probably not trying to be mean or hurtful, but it is realizing how, in my case, you know, a son of a Holocaust survivor, how that one feels. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right? Yeah. But if I say, hey, here's what happened to my dad and his family, and here's how that feels, and they're like mortified, you know? Yeah. Usually. Yeah. And, and, but people just don't have the awareness of, like, we can't see what we can't see. We call them blind spots because we don't see them. Yeah. You know, and to navigate this world that's full of blind spots for all of us, then you need some sonar. And sonar is like sound waves going out and sound waves coming back. A constant conversation with people who are different from you, have different experiences from you, you know, different ages, physical abilities, races, genders, whatever. And all too often people kind of confine themselves to an echo chamber where they just don't get it. Yeah, man. Well, it's great to hear all of your wisdom on race and demographics. I like I said, everything you said is just so, so good. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I was looking at your Instagram page, Anton, and I saw that you guys do maple syruping. Can you oh, yeah. can you tell me about that? Like, how crazy is your operation? Do you guys do, like, tens of hundreds of gallons, or do you just do a little bit? How much were you getting? Um, I actually did maple syruping back in Minnesota with my family, and my dad had this giant, like, metal tub welded together so that he could put it on top of his outdoor cast iron fireplace and it's just been so fun to see my brother-in-law and my dad do that in the spring and they get like oh how many did they get maybe 20 quarts of maple syrup and then they give it as Christmas gifts and you know birthday presents throughout the year to our friends and family but it's just so fun and so cool yeah can you talk about about that and you do it with sure. your kids, right? Your whole family? Yeah, we've we've done maple syrup harvesting pretty much every year of my life, my whole life. Um, and so I used to do this, you know, as my mom kind of showed my dad and, you know, showed us as we were growing up. And then um, something that I do with all of my kids now. Um, we have a, you know, big extended family, although my nuclear crew is probably most of the workforce we usually tap about 150 trees um and it kind of the yield depends on the year so we might make maybe 20 gallons or something dang that's awesome my siblings join with their kids 
you know, when they're able and uh, we share the goods around and um, yeah, we've got a, you know, sugar bush where we harvest and then usually bring the sap to my house and we've got a boiler in the yard where we sit around and, you know, whatever, roast hot dogs and visit. Yeah. Yeah. That's so fun. I miss, I miss all of that outdoor stuff. I, I can't wait to get back to Minnesota and go up to the Boundary Waters. It's going to be just so great. Well, I'm glad to I'm glad to hear that you and your family are outdoorsmen, although I'm not surprised. And then fishing, where do you guys go fishing? Did you go somewhere like out of state or where the heck did you catch all those fish? Oh, we we just went right in front of the house. My house is right up on the Mississippi River. Sweet. And, uh, yeah, the there's a there's a dam not too far from our house, you know, a mile or so, and uh, and so the fish spawn right in front of the dam. Wow. And uh, yeah, so there's a in the spring, you know, the northerns and muskies and walleyes and then suckers come through, and there's an open spearing season with days obviously for the suckers, and so uh, yeah, the kids will just go right in front of the house. That's so cool. Yeah, and I bet you just drop a line in and you get lucky pretty often then with the spawning happening right there. Yeah, they're, they're pretty abundant fish, and uh, yeah, the kids really enjoy it. Cool. Are you guys into hunting at all? Is that something you enjoy, Anton? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, we have lots of avid hunters. All the boys and girls are good shots in our crew, and we all get out there in the woods and have a good time together. Sweet. And then do you guys, like, like do you harvest any of the hides from deer or wolves or whatever you're hunting? I mean... What sorts of Native American traditions do you continue to do surrounding fishing, hunting, gathering, and all of that? Oh, yeah, we've got, you know, we, there's a harvest going every season. Um, You know, we pick berries, we, you know, harvest wild rice, we make maple syrup and sugar, we hunt small game, big game. Um, Kids kind of get started snaring rabbits and things like that. Um, I'd love to say we get most of our food off the grid that's not quite true but i would say what we do kind of supplements um and yeah form some significant percentage of what we eat but um yeah that's cool so, you know i think we're we're modern american people and we're ancient people all at the same time and uh you know i think some of what we do is quite recognizable to our ancestors and you know also drive cars and wear modern clothes and watch TV. So, right. you know, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a culture to our harvest as well. You know, like when we do something like maple syrup harvesting, um, it's not just about like getting syrup. You know, we, for example, when the, the children are born in our family, one of the cultural customs we have is to take the placenta and then it's buried next to a maple tree, um, you know, as which is a symbol, the word for maple in Ojibwe in Inatig means like man tree or tree of life. Very and cool. So, so when you put the placenta there, it's like a blessing for a long life for your kid. And then, uh, you know, it's placed there with tobacco, which is kind of like a spiritual currency, like you pay things forward. So you put it out with a prayer, you know, for them to have a, have a long life so then when it's time to harvest the maple and we we tell the legend of the sugar bush we um open it up with a prayer and then the kids go put tobacco by each tree that they would tap you know to um, start the maple harvest so they're like making offerings where they're 
placentas are at their life trees, you know, oh, to harvest maple syrup. That so, is so cool. It, yeah, so it's just got a different meaning and feel. Um, it's not just about, you know, oh, more spoils for me and right. the street value of this, you know, but it's kind of about a connection to the land and to one another, you know, and, you know, family and things like that. Um, Very and it's been neat. a family tradition, you know, I guess going back for probably thousands of years. Yeah, that's so cool. Anton, what, what is, what prayer, what is your prayer that you say? Can you say it or explain maybe what it would sound like? Um, you know, the prayer itself is done in Ojibwe. It's done with tobacco. So I kind of hesitate to like take it out of its context on a yeah. podcast, but, um, yeah, you know, we invoke our creator. Um, and we also believe that the creator made other spirits and placed them in and amongst all of us. And so we'll pray to the, you know, spirits in the four winds and in the water and things like that. And we'll yeah. ask them to, you know, tell them that we're harvesting maple syrup as to feed our families and we're not doing it just to take and we're doing it with grateful hearts. Right. Love that. Good things and you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I know you were talking about um, ceremonies and, and funerals and they're different, right? What is a ceremony? Can you tell me sort of what goes on at a ceremony or how you would lead a ceremony. And again, anything you're not comfortable sharing, please don't. But if you could just kind of shed some insight on what a ceremony looks like and what a funeral might look like. Yeah, well, there's for us, there are ceremonies for everything, every phase of life. Like, you know, we have a ceremony after a baby's born um, where we give them their first bath. We make a medicine. It is, you know, boiled into a tea and then strained. And it's used to strengthen their constitution or hold on life. We have a ceremony four days after the birth of a child. Um, and that is, um, you know, designed to, like, welcome the arrival of a new spirit into the world. Um, so there's a tobacco offering and food and family comes to meet the new baby. There's, there's another ceremony to provide a native name to the child. The parents do not pick the name for the kid, their spiritual native name. Um, and so they just pick, you know, people who would be the equivalent of godparents, maybe in a Christian tradition, who are good role models and spiritual advisors for them. Um, and then they, um, you know, those people perform the ceremony. Same thing with tobacco offering, food offering. And then they, um, uh, you know, pray for the child and they make promises to the child to be there for their spiritual guidance. They explain about the native names. Um, where they come from, um, give the names, there's a feast, um, there's ceremonies as kids come of age, like when they get their first, you know, successful deer hunt, um, there'll be what's called a first kill ceremony and same thing, food and tobacco offerings. Somebody gives a prayer, um, hunters ritually fed, you know, there are ceremonies as girls get their first menstrual period. They have a whole year of ceremonies. Um, you know, marking their transition to womanhood, um, you know, wow. fasting. There are ceremonies for different kinds of healing, drum ceremonies where people come to give thanks and make offerings um, to spirits at the drums that protect us. There are there's lots of stuff. So Very, very um, neat. That's so ceremony cool. Ceremony is complex. You know, it's hard to get it all in one sitting, but there's a pretty rich cultural tradition uh, amongst the Ojibwe 
um, that we actively participate in. Funerals are different, you know, um, when somebody dies, we believe that the spirit leaves the body and the funeral ceremony is for the departing soul. Uh, we eat with them rather than after the event. We um, you know, share smoke pipes with the departing soul. There are legends for them, songs, and then instructions for them how to get to the spirit world. Um, there's some instructions for the family on how to deal with grief in a healthy way. Yeah. Um, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, neat. Yeah, I, I always think it's interesting with death how hard it is for the people that are left behind. You know, sometimes people are just in shock that they're gone, you know, and I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that in the Native American tradition, you guys really try hard to stop and breathe and be grateful for what's around you and what's sustaining you. And, you know, it's just really powerful and really moving to hear that. Um, you know, I, I feel like I do these things too, just in my head, but it's not an actual, you know, ceremony. But I, I you know... I, I try to practice some of those things too, and it's just really neat. I'm very intrigued by all of that. Um, yeah. What would like hospice look like in the Native American community? I mean, I imagine again, mentors or um, men in, in the Native American community might go pray with the person who's dying. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, when somebody's, you know, has a disease or, you know, whatever old age they're, um, they know they're on their way out. Um, yeah, it's common that someone will perform a ceremony. They'll be, um, you know, for purposes of prayer, there are different kinds of medicines people might use. There are teachings about, um, you know, death and dying that are often observed. And then like happens with a lot of people from a lot of traditions, you know, People who love that person, immediate family especially, often are close and want to be there with them and spend time with them, Um, you know. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Very neat. And then this is kind of um, a random question, but how do Native Americans feel about the LGBT community? Anton, if one of your boys came up to you and said that they were gay, how would that be handled? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, just a, a quick disclaimer the cultural things I'm sharing are not the same for all native people. Right. Um, you know, I am one person from one tribe and even that tribe, the Ojibwe are spread across several U S states and Canadian provinces. And there's some pretty big differences culturally between those different places. Okay. And even within one of those communities, like there are plenty of, you know, native people who are, you know, Catholic, or Episcopalian, or Lutheran, or feel pretty agnostic, you know, or follow the Native American church, which fuses Christian traditions with uh, pre-contact use of peyote. Um, And then there are many people who follow traditional tribal customs and rites. That's kind of what we do in my family. So there's a diversity of faith traditions within the Native experience. So just like we couldn't say well, what do white people think about death and dying? Right. Well, there's no one simple, easy answer on that. There, there are all kinds of white people with all kinds of different beliefs, and it depends on which you're talking to or about. So it's like that for Native people, too. Um, and then, you know, with regard to, you know, the specific experiences of, you know, Ojibwe people, you know, around this sort of thing, um, you know, I, I think there are very even varying levels of participation in those 
you know, ceremonies and rites and practices. So there might be a lot of people who believe in traditional Ojibwe ways, but they, they don't, might not do all of the same things that we do the same way. That we sure, do. So, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to make sure that those disclaimers are out there before people think I'm, you know. Yeah, well. Telling them what to do. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's good because... You know, like you're saying, everyone's different. No two people are the same, and it's the same with a tribe. It makes a lot of sense. Um, do Native Americans g- generally accept LGBT? Um, yeah, like, so, or, yeah, or so is that not really? That yeah. Um, it's interesting, but pre-contact, uh, there seemed to be quite widespread acceptance of, you know, really gay and lesbian, um, including transvestite, you know, presentations, there were, depending on the tribe, kind of gender divisions of labor, there were certain things kind of men dead and women dead with regard to duties like hunting, fishing, gathering, long distance travel. Often men were doing more of that, you know, um, and local harvesting, you know, berry picking, wild rice harvesting, tanning hides, often women did that, but that didn't say anything about what somebody's, you know, sexual anatomy uh, would dictate. And so ultimately there could be, a, you know, somebody who's born with a penis who identified as a woman and could function as a woman both in marriage and in gender roles in society. Very cool. Uh, in that case and, and vice versa. So, um, so we see, like, when you look at early historical records, pretty widely... Um, accepted, celebrated. Um, in George Catlin's work, for example, you see dances in honor, you know, of what what the French called the burdash. That's considered a derogatory term now for men who function as women in society. But um, you know, it seemed to be pretty widespread across multiple tribes. Um, you know, acceptance of that. And I think throughout human history, you know, one in ten people are not like heteronormative yeah uh, which you know, is with yeah with the world. yeah so, that's a high you know, cultures that's a high percentage it. one out of ten i mean that's a lot of people yep yep and you know some studies have said you know that it's not even as simple as like man woman you know gay lesbian we may have as you know as many as 26 different kinds of gender identities um, you know, even in pre-contact indigenous societies. So it's complex. It, it varies a bit from tribe to tribe. Um, when you flash forward to today, the way something was for a white person, you know, in 1491 is not the same as it is for a white person now. And it's the same for native people. Like our cultures aren't frozen in time. Right. Um, you know, and so I do think that, you know, native culture today is influenced, impacted, and informed by the traditional cultures and heritage, you know, beliefs around these things, but they're also impacted by, you know, modern world um, beliefs and practices around those things, too. It kind of depends on where you look. So, for the most part, kind of interestingly, Native populations tend to... Um, be heavily impacted by the larger society around them. For example, in the Great Lakes and the Northwest Coast, lots of Native people. And they tend to be pretty liberal socially 
and tend to vote Democrat. Native people in Oklahoma, there's lots of Native people in Oklahoma, um, right in the heart of the Bible Belt, tend to be predominantly Baptist or Methodist and a little bit more Christian conservative um, and vote a little bit more often Republican. Wow. Um, so when you talk about how do Natives feel about gay and lesbian um, you know, people or the way they interact with the world, then you will hear different answers. Sure. Um, and, and so in a place like Oklahoma, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody's, you know, talking to you just like, you know, a white Christian fundamentalist would. And I think in much of the rest of Indian country, you're going to get a much more liberal response. So sure. I would say, you know, the Oklahoma folks, you know, their views on, you know, being gay or lesbian have deviated quite a bit from what their ancestors were, more so than in other parts of um, right. Indian country. But um, it's hard to say exactly how much and in how ways and to what degrees right. these things are. Right. No, that makes sense. Traditional culture or something else. Sure, sure. That makes sense. Um, what? So kind of wrapping up here, what um, questions do you get the most surrounding you know, your Native American or Jewish heritage? Like, what questions do people have? I mean, Anton, the fact that you are the son of a Jewish man who survived the Holocaust and you have a mother who's a part of the Native American community, it's just so amazing and so beautiful. It truly is. Um, And, yeah, it's so cool that you're working as a professor and you're working on Rosetta Stone and you're working at making sure people are educated and um, providing them with the knowledge to be more aware of, you know, Native American language and culture. It's just really, really neat. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for that. Yeah. You know, um, I wrote a whole book on the questions I get on Native Everything called Everything You Wanted to Know About Indians But We're Afraid to Ask. There's over 100 questions in there. Yeah, that, that's uh, a great book. That I commonly get. And they range, you know, from terminology is it indian native american aboriginal indigenous first nation person or what um to contemporary issues what do you think about mascots what do you think about dakota access pipeline what do you think about you know modern politics what's going on with you know what is tribal sovereignty kind of indian studies 101 stuff um what's it like what's it like on a reservation yeah is it hard to leave is it hard to come on you know, I mean, you get all kinds of stuff, you know, what, what are native names? How does that work? Tell me about religion, you know? Yeah. I don't know. It, it's, it's hard to say, you know, what the top, uh, survey result is, but you know, there, there are quite a few questions, um, you know, that sometimes in my mind range from crazy to curious to, you know, really, um, probing and thoughtful and helpful. So, I think all the questions are welcome and, you know, it's important as Native people that we open up safe space and let people ask their questions and give meaningful answers rather than just an angry rebuke. Right. Learning going. Yeah, we could all learn from being a little more patient, couldn't we, and a little more curious of why our neighbors do what they do. Um, Okay, well, lastly, um, I guess I know we kind of already touched on this, but why is it important that we never stop talking about race and those isms? You know, someday, I hope we get to the point where 
race, which is really a social construct rather than a biologically measurable thing. Right. That it really won't matter. And where, you know, our sexual orientation or gender, you know, or, you know, able-bodiedness or whatever it happens to be, where, where those things don't provide advantage or disadvantage, where we really are, like, evaluated by the content of our character yeah rather than one of these attributes yeah it sounds like you're yeah we're sure uh, not ultimately the problems don't just go away like if you just think about class and classism rich folk are going to find out how to keep that money in their family how to set up trust funds how to circumvent the estate tax laws how to change the laws you know And as a result, wealth will self-perpetuate, which means poverty will too. Yeah. And uh, it's the same with all the isms. They naturally self-perpetuate. So it's not enough to, like, wish it gone or be really nice and just emphasize niceness. It's it's not enough to, um, you know, interrupt things for a little while. We need to disrupt things. Yeah. And, and that means major change. And change will always bring about resistance. And we can see it now, you know, the resistance to any kind of social change, to demographic change is so profound. And, uh, you know, their works like Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and he says there's never going to be change until the oppressed bring the demand for change and that demand is answered by the oppressor uh, and that they're in conversation with one another. Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without demand. And you can see it like women's suffrage, women were not part of the American polity when America was created, you know? And when women wanted to vote, man, was there a fight, you know? Yeah. Like Susan B. Anthony was like beaten by batons and left in the street to die. You know, like yeah. it was a horrible fight. But by raising the demand and pressing the issue yeah. and making people uncomfortable and disrupting the order, eventually an all male Senate voted for women's suffrage. And that couldn't have happened if the oppressors, the male Senate, didn't participate in the healing. And that couldn't happen if those who were oppressed did not present a demand. Right. You need both. So it's important for those who can see the oppression that they bring the demand and advocate. And yeah. it's important for those who receive an unearned benefit, as we all do, one way or another, are listening to those who don't get the same benefit so we can be in conversation with one another to find meaningful solutions. It's the only way to make things change. Yeah. Well, very well said. I don't know how we just talked for an hour, Anton, but we did it. And uh, thank you for answering all these questions. It really did truly fly by. So I really appreciate all your time. And um, no yeah, it's exciting. I'm I'm going to keep stirring the pot on my end and splashing puddles and making people talk about things. And 
Um, I just really appreciate you being on and I'm super excited to hear more about the Rosetta Stone as that comes out. When is that being released for the Ojibwe language? Do you know? Um, it is likely going to be, um, you know, sometime in 2021. Okay, so very soon. The first year will, yeah. Wow, awesome. Well, thank you again so much. Um, I'll reach out to you if I need anything else, but I feel like I'm pretty well set. So thanks for taking the time. Yeah, and I'll let you know when your um, uh, interview is live. I just got on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Google, and Patreon. So that's super exciting. Awesome. Good for you, and I look forward to seeing it. All right, Anton. Thanks a lot. You take care. You too. Bye. Hello, Anton. Hey, how's it going? Well, it's going well today. I am doing a lot better than a lot of people in this country, as you know. So I have no complaints here other than people kind of annoying me, even my own friends. So, but yeah, thank you for getting on with me. I know this is a a hard subject to talk about, but one that you're not, you know, blind to. So... I, I just wanted to get on with you, Anton, and whatever you're comfortable saying, feel free to say, or if you need to con- stop the conversation at any time, please know that I respect your um, your limits as far as what you're able to say and how long you want to talk. Like I said, I've, I've felt frustrated by my own friends. As you know, within the last week, um, the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police, along with uh, many other black lives here in the last 10 years by the hands of the police department in Minneapolis. Um, I know that you are not a member of the black community, but I know that you are a member of a minority group that has historically been oppressed by white America. And um, it's not how I feel. Uh, you know, I don't agree with President Trump. I haven't much of his presidency, and I certainly don't now. Um, and I also know that his actions as a president, as a leader, are so important during this time, and I just feel like he is so tone deaf, and I hope I'm not being either. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack and discuss there. I think, first of all, uh, I don't know if you watched the video of George Floyd's murder or not. Um, I did. Yep, I did. And uh, what I saw was confirmed by the most recent two autopsies that he was killed by the actions of that police officer and being handcuffed and gasping and saying, I can't breathe and calling out for his mama. Um, that was a murder. Yeah. Pretty chilling. And, uh, there's no doubt in my mind about what that was. Right. I've been a little heartbroken that most of the outrage, especially the outrage coming from the white community is in response to the protests. Yeah. Rather than the murder. Yeah, they're worried about about public building damage. They're not worried about a black community being oppressed. Yeah, and so, again, you know, the defense of white property is vigorous, and the defense of black lives is not. 
Yeah. And I, you know, I think that's really interesting. Like, you know, when we had an event like nine 11, I think a lot of Americans really empathized with our emergency response personnel, police and fire who died during that event. Um, you know, trying to help people. And it kind of felt to a lot of Americans that an attack on our law enforcement personnel was like an attack on America. Yeah. And for many black Americans and Native Americans and others too, an attack by our law enforcement personnel feels like an attack by America. Yeah. And so, you know, the response to George Floyd, it's not just about George Floyd. I, you know, I was reflecting on my experience with law enforcement and the fact that my body is not valued as much as a white body in this country. Yeah. And I was thinking it could be me. America, not just a lone wolf bad actor, but America could attack me. Yeah. And it was heartbreaking to think that America would be, you know, so one-sided and hypocritical about what we saw there. You know, Derek Chauvin, the police officer who murdered George Floyd, um, you know, in addition to his personal actions and and using a restraint method not approved of or taught, you know, for the uh, Minneapolis police force, you know, um, has chosen to be represented by Tom Kelly, the same attorney who got um, got Officer Geronimo Yanez um, off the hook in the murder of Philando Castile. Um, he had been put on leave and like. 2011 for an inappropriate police shooting of an Alaska Native American named Leroy Martinez. You know, he shot um, Ira Toles, who was an unarmed black man, 21 years old in 2008. Yeah, I read about that. Who murdered Wayne Reyes, a Latino man. Um, And they shot at him 42 times. And yet he had, you know, a dozen police brutality complaints. Yeah. And every single one, and this is just with the Minneapolis um, Police Department, and they're all listed as closed, non-public, and no discipline. So I kind of feel like, you know, a lot of the white communities like, well, he was a bad actor. He was a lone wolf. And I kind of feel like in this particular case, if you've got a thousand great police officers and one bad one, but the 1,000 great police officers can't do anything to hold the one bad one accountable with all of that warning. You don't have 1,000 great police officers and one bad one. You got 1,001 bad police officers. Yeah. Yeah. When people's lives are are at stake. Yeah. They have to speak up. They cannot be silent. They are the ones who should be pushing for justice and they're not. Yep. And then, you know, all the more frustrating to me, that just over the past month or so, we have seen huge protests to the orders from governors, state governors to stay at home, primarily populated 
by white Americans, many of whom were carrying assault rifles right. and other guns. Right into and Michigan's capital. Can you believe it? And not a single right. thing and not a single action is taken on these protesters. Right. And so they were not held accountable. Um, they were also not shouted down by the president of the United States. Right. Um, you know, he, he empathized with them and said, yes, liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, liberate Wisconsin, stop the stay at home orders, you know, and, uh, and stood with them. And when there was a white supremacist march in Virginia a couple of years ago, he's like, well, a lot of them are really good people. Right. They're upset. And, right. You know, and stuff like that. And I think some of what is going on is that the murder of George Floyd feels like a murder by America of another black man. It doesn't feel like a lone wolf actor. No, because it's not. Community. Yeah, it's and, not. And also, in addition to that, like when we had shootings, you know, our killings of black men in Ferguson or Baltimore when Barack Obama was president, the president stood up and said, I feel your hurting hearts. You have endured injustice for far too long. I want to encourage you to work with our good men and women in law enforcement and the justice system to see that justice is done. And this president has not said anything like that. He has said, you know, the protesters are terrorists. Yeah, they're and thugs and they should the be shot. Yeah. And he has exacerbated tensions. And it has just inflamed the feeling that it's not a lone wolf actor. America is at war with people of color, as it's been since the beginning. Right. Black people in America have been slaves longer than they have been free in this country. Right. You know, and and the assault on black and brown bodies is ongoing. And people are outraged about, you know, the protests. And to me, you know, first of all, I do not condone rioting. You know, I, I don't think that is a necessary way to express, you know, our upset. But at the same time, you know, when white dudes were dumping tea into the harbor in Boston for the Boston Tea Party, their method of protest was chastised and seen as illegal. When people protested apartheid by marching in the streets, it was seen as inappropriate. You know, when when football players kneel, yeah, right. When they're they the most respect, bold. right? They're like doing it in the most respectful way, and people still have a problem with it. Right, and they were still told it's inappropriate. Well, hell, America should have listened then. Yeah. And they didn't. Yeah. You know, and they won't listen. And it's like what Frederick Douglass said, you know, like power concedes nothing without a demand. And so I see people who have a good reason to be upset who are trying to present a demand. And until America finds a way to listen, this will keep happening over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm upset with myself just with this happening. You know, like I 
I feel angry, I feel upset, I feel enough to want to call you back, right, and talk about the things we've been talking about the last couple times I've had you on the horn. And I feel sad that today, you know, I can sit here and tell you, Anton, I'm so upset and I'm a white female. I can't imagine how my brown brothers and sisters or black brothers and sisters are feeling today as they sit, you know, we should all be infuriated. And I'm sad that although I'm having these conversations, right, of people pushing to overcome and be resilient, all those good things we've talked about, ignorance is so prominent in white America. I mean, this, I I saw a meme or a cartoon online of Donald Trump kneeling like that cop did on George George's neck. Uh, President Trump was kneeling on um, Lady Liberty, you know, with her torch and whatever. And I just thought like, wow, how powerful, what a powerful image. Um, I'm disappointed that my white president has not taken any time to say black lives matter. This is sad. This is hard. You know, Barack Obama was able to take a stand on that during his presidency. And he's taking a stand on it now, saying this is wrong, this is not right. And we have yet to hear from our president. And to me, that's so infuriating, too, as a Christian woman, is what's transpired in the last 24, 48 hours with him tear gassing and rubber bulleting peaceful protesters at the White House. Is the White House not if not every capital in the United States or any law office we should be allowed to protest at, for sure, the White House, right? Like, that is a place of holy ground where MLK spoke. Our our founding fathers were crap to, to your people. I mean, you know, people can't even go peacefully protest at our nation's capital without being abused for President Trump to go to a church and hold up a Bible and pretend like that is justified. It is, it is so, I'm so angry about that. How does it make you feel to see him? Again, I know none of this is new for you, but how does it make you feel to see him act like that when he has not once said George Floyd's death was wrong and Black Lives Matter. Yeah. So I feel like I've been surrounded by people who hate my guts for 500 years. Right. This is not a change. Right. Racism is not growing and new. Right. It's just being recorded. Right. That's the only change. It's More. new to white people yeah. that such imagery is coming across their feed. It's harder now for white people to ignore the obvious injustice yeah. for some white Americans. But for many others, they do choose to continue to ignore it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Frankly, you know, one of the messages I would give to my white brothers and sisters is instead of 
just having outrage at the ridiculous white people, you know, like Derek Chauvin, you know, or even President Trump. It's tempting for, for a lot of white Americans to do that, to say, ooh, those guys, that's not me. Yeah. You know? And what it is, is they're saying, I'm one of the good guys. See me? I'm over here on this side of the line, not that side of the line. And in a way, it's still a focus on their individual goodness and righteous. And it's even a little smug. Yeah. What I'm really looking for from my white brothers and sisters is, first of all, an introspective examination into like, what am I not seeing? Yeah. How do I benefit from this system? How have I perpetuated it? One of my privileges as a white person is I can lean into that conversation when I want and when it suits my comfort and in a way that pleases me, comforts me. But if you're black or brown, you have to deal with this issue every day, whether you want to or not. Yeah. And so, so I'm looking for the introspective piece. And one of the things, like, even if a white person, you know, grapples with and has a deeper understanding of the issues, you know, railing on Twitter about Trump is only going to do so much. Yeah. And probably one of the most effective things that white Americans, like white allies can do is to engage in conversation with their white friends and family members that they see, you know, at the dinner table who are of a different persuasion and find effective ways to engage them in a meaningful conversation. Because I may have a message and a way of saying it, but I'm the wrong messenger because I don't have affinity with those guys. Yeah. And they will dismiss me. And so that's what I need my white brothers and sisters to do. Yeah. In a way, it's like self-defensive just to rail on Trump and Chauvin and not to talk about the systemic arrangement of power along racial lines. And that's what needs to be not just interrupted, but disrupted. And it'll only happen when there's meaningful change across culture. You know, like the mayor of a local town here in Bemidji, Black Duck, was posting pictures on his Facebook feed, you know, of a Jeep covered in blood. And he said, I didn't have any problem with the protesters. I just drove straight here. No problems. You know, ha, ha, ha. And, uh, you know, he essentially making light of killing protesters by running them over. And uh, he just resigned today. And a lot of my white friends are like, yay, justice has been done. That's good. You know, but they're not looking at and addressing the fact that most of them voted that guy into office. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And some people will be upset about Trump, you know, and, and he's been a very polarizing figure. But most Americans voted him in. Yeah. Yeah, they did. That's why you he's... Know? That's so, why so he's president. Systemic support for these ideas and a pass given to those who engage in them. And when you look back at something like the Nazi Holocaust, you know, like the number of people who really believed the final solution was a great idea was pretty small. 
and also the number of people who would like take great personal risk to protect Jews, like Oscar Schindler, was pretty dang small. Most people were in between, too quiet and too cowardly yeah. to interrupt that frame of thinking before it controlled the agenda. And that's what's going on in America. Too many white people are too quiet and too cowardly and unwilling to have uncomfortable conversations. They'll act in white solidarity and appease comfort rather than really try to engineer change. And if they are upset, then they'll voice their upset in a social media way, but not in any way that would risk their relationships with their, you know, friends, family work, supporting family members. Yeah. Yeah. What, what else, Anton, can, can you share with the listeners about what they can do in their homes, in their hearts, in their communities? I mean, people don't know what they don't know they don't know, right? And you know, you've lived it. Your ancestors have lived it on both sides. Your mother is um, Native American and your your father was Jewish. You, you're, you're, you have a very unique platform. Um, what can we do? What, what does your wife want? What does your wife want to do? What do your white friends want to do? Um, what does her family so, want to do? You know, there is so much that has been said and written, you know, posted a list of like 75 things white people can do. You know, there are all kinds of articles like this. Yeah. Online, you know, and, you know, it kind of comes down into categories of like, get informed, you know, read a history book, (laughs) consistently informed. So you've got a finger on the pulse of the conversation outside of your white circle, you know, Look yeah. at the favorites list on your phone. Is it racially homogeneous? Yeah. Do you Maybe, even know anyone that's not white? You know, yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, some of it has to do with connection, information, education, you know, and then it has to do with, you know, self-awareness, <clears throat> developing an understanding so you can actually speak to the issues um, and then engaging. There are a lot of people, I think, who when they first saw the murder of George Floyd, felt some empathy towards him and the black community, and then quit listening when, you know, somebody started rioting. Yeah. And so there are people in between who are open to influence and communication. So engage them in influence and communication. Yeah, yeah. And try to build a deeper understanding And then there are lots of political actions and social actions, you know, and how we vote makes a huge difference. Yes. A lot of really important elections are decided by very thin margins in a country where only half of America votes, you know, and uh, we need change. Yeah. And, And we need to hold one another and our legislators and public officials and our police officers accountable. Yeah. 
thank you, Anton, for taking more time to get on here. Um, no problem. Appreciate the call. And, uh, yeah. Hey, I just wanted to say, too, who should watch that video of George Floyd? You know, it's, it's, um, I don't, like, I feel a little bit funny saying that people should be compelled to watch it. I think for a lot of, um, people who have experienced direct trauma, that can be very triggering. It is a murder, you know? Um, and so I'm careful about posting direct videos of it. Like in, even in my social media, although I've posted news articles that have links to that video. Um, I do think that people, if they want to say anything, like it wasn't a murder or people don't have a right to protest, those folks should watch that video before they say that. Yeah. And I think too, for me as a white woman, I've told some of my friends like, George Floyd isn't your white father, you know? George Floyd isn't your white fiancé. George Floyd isn't you. But but if you were to put yourself in his shoes or your white dad in his shoes, that murder wouldn't have happened. And that's the difference is, like, he is a man regardless if he used a counterfeit $20 bill or regardless of whatever, I don't care. He shouldn't have been murdered by four powerful police officers. It's just when, when we can truly put ourselves in the shoes of the people that are oppressed on a daily basis. Like I said, I'm upset and I'm a white female and I, am greatly saddened and anger and angered i can't imagine feeling what's in your heart because it must be times a hundred you know yeah i hear a loud bird in the background of your recording and it yeah kind of checked me back into a good place because i'm just i am i'm upset anton and i um this is all the reason why I want to do this podcast. I want these conversations to be had. And at the very least, if my white friends and listeners are not having these conversations, I'm happy that they've listened to this episode. And um, racism is something we can never stop talking about because, like you said, your ancestors were murdered for the very ground that they walked on, right? And these black men and women have been enslaved longer than they have been free just thank you for taking the time thank you for trusting me enough to have these conversations with me and also speaking out against hate i really appreciate your time no problem thanks for having me on all right anton we'll be talking soon all right take care this has been push diaries podcast Please visit our website at pushdiariespodcast.com to see our mission and learn more about the guests. This is your podcast too. I want to hear your stories. Email me at pushdiariespodcast at gmail.com and consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com forward slash pushdiariespodcast. Thank you for listening.
Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast episode. Please be sure to check out Anton's books at our website along with his at antontruer.com. And be sure to check out the show notes at www.pushdiariespodcast.com forward slash episodes forward slash Anton to learn more about his mission and work with Rosetta Stone. Please know that I am an ally of the Black and Native American community. Please know that I am an ally of all different types of people going through many different things. I want to hear your stories. If you or someone you know is interested in being on the podcast to share their story of resilience and overcoming, I want to hear from you. Thank you. Every two weeks, I will be releasing more stories about people who are overcoming. Please be sure to check back for more content and find Push Diaries Podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and iTunes. Thank you for being here. Be kind. Have the tough conversations. Hold yourself and those around you accountable. If we truly want to give justice to George and the countless other black and brown people who have been oppressed by our very own system, we must not be silent.